1967, Jim Fix was an overweight, two-pack-a-day smoker who decided upon getting towards the end of his 30s that he needed to get in some kind of shape. So he did something that was rather unorthodox for his day. He didn't go to the gym. He didn't pick up some weights. He put on a pair of shorts. He put on a pair of tennis shoes, which uh, really were to be played tennis. And he went outside and he began to jog around his neighborhood. Now, 10 years later, 60 pounds lighter, no more a smoker, in the best shape of his life, running close to 80 miles a week, Jim Fix wrote a best-selling book. And that book is said to have been the springboard, the foundation for the fitness revolution that we've been experiencing since the early 1980s. You see, his book that he wrote in 1978 said uh, that running was a way for us to not only spark our metabolism, but it was a way for us to get into shape. And he was a walking example of it. And his best-selling book, which was called The Complete Book of Running, is credited as giving birth to the idea of jogging or running for health. So if you're a jogger, if you're a runner this morning, if you do that to stay in shape, then you can give credit or you can give blame to Jim Fix. He's the one that started it all. But the ironic part of it is just six years after Fix was in the best shape of his life, after he wrote this book that turned everyone onto running, while he was running up in Vermont on a a lonely passageway, part of his daily run, he had a massive heart attack, fell and died instantly. The doctors later, as they were doing an autopsy on Fix, determined that of his three main arteries, one was 98% blocked, one was 88% blocked, and one was 75% blocked. The doctors were amazed that he was even able to walk around. Matter of fact, they said it was probably his heart being so strong that kept him from experiencing shortness of breath and, and heart pains that normally would indicate some kind of heart disease. The thing is, Fix's wife said that even though his father had died in his early 50s, Fix had never gone in for a heart uh, examination. He'd never gone in to the doctor to have anything examined with his heart because he felt like running would always take care of his heart. But see, he was deceived. He was mistaken. And just as Fix was mistaken that somehow his jogging and his running would protect him, from having heart disease, many in the church today are mistaken in understanding what it means to be a follower of Christ. You see, many people today are deceived into thinking that somehow what they've said in the past or somehow some action that they've done will protect them from facing God in eternity. Now, if there was ever any time in the New Testament that Jesus was Uh, more blunt, it's in our passage for this morning. Because you see, unlike many people today, Jesus didn't shy away from confronting people that had doubts in their salvation. Jesus didn't shy away from trying to, to cover up this idea of everyone needs to be sure all the time. You see, today in our culture, uh, it is much more comfortable for pastors and preachers and teachers to try to appease everyone in their comfort to keep people coming to church. And you see, what happens in churches, what, what develops is somehow this little program where we've taught ourselves that if, if we can just preach 
nice, comfortable messages that make people feel good. And I'm not saying that you should never feel good when you're in church, but somehow we've decided that we don't want to confront the reality of what's going on in the pew. Instead, we'll just preach something nice, and then if we can get people to go through a program and then somehow say a prayer and sign a card and rush them to the baptistry and we can convince them that now you're saved and and there's no reason to doubt, then everything's going to be okay. And that may be okay for filling the pew. It may be okay for pushing up our baptism numbers. It may be okay uh, for, for building a big church, but it goes against everything that Jesus teaches about what it means to be a Christ follower. As we just saw in our passage in Luke, Jesus never watered down. He never washed away the idea of the hope that we have in Christ. Matter of fact, those who had doubts, Jesus confronted on a regular basis. You see, Jesus' idea was that we should never deal with people who are unsure of their salvation and get rid of their doubts. You see, that's what our first reaction is in the church. We want people to all know that they know. And so what we do, instead of confronting doubts that we might have, is we just paste over it. But yet Paul tells the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do not realize, if you do not realize that Jesus Christ is in you, then you might fail the test. You see, examining ourselves requires a difficult path that you and I are called to follow. It's much easier to sit in our pew with our doubts. It's much easier to sit and and, and convince ourselves that somehow everything is okay and somehow there are no problems in my Christian walk and and just come and go to church and, and leave and come back and have this comfort level instead of ever examining ourselves, instead of ever looking into ourselves. And you understand that that Paul and Jesus are not they're not trying to get you to doubt. My goal as a pastor is to never get you to doubt. I'm not trying to build doubt in you. My goal is that you would have assurance. You see, my goal as a pastor and what Jesus is teaching us this morning is that he wants you to know that you know what it means to be a follower of Christ and examine in your heart whether or not you have experienced that on a personal basis. Because you see, what Jesus is going to tell us is, and, and really what statistics tell us, you know, if you look at statistics, 92% of the people in the United States of America say they are Christian. But what we've developed is a cultural Christianity where people say they're Christian because they grow up in a Christian environment, not because they've had an experience with Jesus Christ. And we're not seeing the power in our nation. We're not seeing a move of God in our nation that should be evident if 92% of the people in this country claim to know Jesus Christ. So there has to be a problem. And evidence by what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount is that we have churches and religious organizations and groups that are filled with people that don't really understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that makes it one of the most sad and difficult passages in the Bible to read. You see, last week in the Sermon on the Mount, as I told you, we began to talk about false teachers. We began to talk about teachers that look religious and sound religious and sound spiritual. That when you come to church, it sounds like church stuff and it maybe even sounds spiritual, but they preach a different God and a different Jesus and a different gospel and even a different Bible than what's consistently found in the Word of God. And in those teachings, people are led astray from the truth of the Word of God. And you see, it is the truth that sets you free. 
And if all you experience is saying a prayer with your lips, if all you experience is writing something down, a date in your Bible, or going to a baptistry, then you aren't experiencing the power if you're not experiencing the truth. And you see, no one is immune from being pulled into this deception. Every denomination is touched. Every faith community, many churches are touched. And it's devastating. And as Jesus was talking about false teachers this morning, He goes to the next level and talks about the end result of false teaching. See, He's going to talk about what happens to those who get deceived into the gospel that is not really the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you have a Bible, I want you to follow along with me. It's just three verses, but probably the three most powerful, sad verses in the Bible. Matter of fact, I had a difficult time, and I've taught on this passage and these passages. Many, it, it broke my heart every time I read this passage because it's so powerful. So I pray that the Word of God would speak to you this morning through His Word. Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is heaven. And then, and then look at this in verse 22. Many, not a few, not a couple, and he's talking to people that are in the church. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not drive out demons? And did we not perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me. Away from me, you evildoers. You see what breaks my heart about this passage is he's talking about the church. He's talking about good people. He's talking about sincere people. He's talking about religious people, church people, Sunday school teachers and deacons and worship leaders and pastors and people who give to the church and people who serve in the church. He's talking about our neighbors. He's talking about our family members, all who are rejected by God because in reality they rejected him. And more importantly, they rejected his terms for what it means to be a Christian. You see, it breaks my heart because these people at face value seem to be doing all the right things. If you were to come into a church and look at these people, you would think that they were the pillars of the community. They were the pillars of the church. If you even listen to what they said, they sounded good. But somehow those same people are going to stand before God someday and He is going to reject them from entering into eternity with Him. And that should break our hearts. You see, if there's anything that this passage does, it blows up the idea that somehow if we just do enough good stuff, we'll get to heaven. That somehow if we can just balance the, the balance, if we can just keep it uh, good and bad and we can do more good than we do bad, then somehow we'll get to heaven. This verse blows that to pieces. This verse blows to pieces the idea that somehow at the end when everything is said and done, God is going to change his mind and everything that he says in the New Testament, it doesn't really matter because he, he loves people and so he's just going to let everybody in. That blows this passage away. Because you see, this passage tells us that not everybody is going to be saved. And even scarier, not everyone who thinks they are saved, who is expecting to go to heaven, is really saved. And even more powerful, not everyone who says, Lord, who recognizes that Jesus is God, will be saved. To understand from this passage, first of all, words are not enough. See, it's not enough just to say the right things. 
enough just to sing the song. It's not enough just to pray the prayer that somehow somebody has written out and told you that scriptedly this is what you're supposed to do. It's not enough even acknowledging that Jesus is God. Because he says in this passage, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, that word Lord is to say, Kurion, that you are God. That's not enough. You see, being a Christian is not just about knowing the truth. You can understand the Bible. You can know the Bible. You can have the Bible memorized and still not be saved. See, Jesus wants us to understand that belief without behavior doesn't mean anything. That confession without conduct is futile. That admonition without action will always leave you on the outside looking in. Listen to what James says in James 2. For what good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith and has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have deeds. Show me faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. For you believe that there's one God... That's saying, Lord, Lord, James says, good. Even the demons in hell believe that, and they shudder. See, so many today would say, I believe that Jesus is God. I, I believe that God has a plan. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. That's not enough just to say it. Because you see, faith without action isn't faith. And I've used this illustration before, and I've, I've told you about the chair and having faith in the chair. You see, you can say all you want that that chair will hold you. We can write books about how that chair was created to hold you. We can go find the creator of that chair and he can tell us that he built it specifically to be able to hold you. You can sing songs about how great the chair is and how beautiful the chair is and how much it will hold you when you need it. But you see, that is not faith. That is simply a theory. It doesn't become faith until you actually make a move, go and sit down in the chair. See, you can stand around it, you can touch it, you can look at it. That's what we do in church. But until you say, I trust, not just I say with my lips, not just I believe, I trust. And you act on it. Hey, the chair holds me. That all of a sudden that faith becomes reality. You see, what James was saying is it's not enough just to say it. It's not enough just to talk about it. And somehow we've convinced ourselves in the church that if we just sound right, if we just say the right things, if we just sing the right things, if we just pray the right things, then somehow that's enough. Jesus says faith without actions isn't really faith. It's just a theory. And a theory will get you the same answer as a reprobate that's turned their back on God. Depart from me. I never knew you. True faith is not just believing something. It's stepping out and putting your faith in it your trust in it it's not enough just to say we acknowledge that jesus is lord we have to say he is my lord it's taking what jesus said as a reality and making it yours you see just having an intellectual awareness of truth will never save you belief must always live itself out through action words without action without obedience is meaningless this idea that somehow we can just repeat a rote prayer and that is somehow going to convince God that we have uh, a desire to be saved is not enough. As I said, Jesus wants all or nothing. And in, the, in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelations, 
The angel of the Lord speaking to John was talking to the seven churches and he talked to the church at Ephesus, which is one of the most important churches in the New Testament. It's a church that Paul started. It was the church that he sent Timothy to. It's a church that was on his heart. The church that we learned last week that he warned them, be very careful because when I leave, wolves are going to come in and they're going to teach you things that will lead you astray. And the angel of the Lord in the book of Revelation says to the church at Ephesus, you have all the truth. You know the right things. You say the right things. You stand up for the right things. But you've lost your first love. See, what he's saying is you've forgotten that it's more than just words and it's more than just things that you sing and you do. It's about loving Christ with everything that you have. It's about loving Him more than we love our mother and our brother and our father and our spouse and our siblings and our children. It's about taking up our cross and denying ourselves and following Him. It's about giving up everything that we have and following Him. See, it breaks my heart that, that we, we sing songs and we pray prayers and we know all the words and we can quote passages of Scripture. We can go through all the religious motions, but that's not enough. See, Jesus isn't talking about somebody losing something. He's not talking about all of a sudden somewhere in your Christian path, you, you, you say, I've lost my salvation. He's talking about you discovering that you never had it in the first place. See, the issue isn't doubt. The issue is assurance. Do you know that your faith is more than just words? Jesus warns in Matthew 15, 8, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, but their teacher is nothing but rules taught by men. So I wonder how many of us this week will sing these songs. We believe. I trust in Christ. And then this week we will go out and live just the opposite. Even before the day is over today, we will live just the opposite of what we've spoken with our lips. You see, Jesus says our actions will always back up what we say because saying something is not enough. Jesus said words are not enough. The second thing he teaches in verse 22 is he says actions are not enough. He said many will come to me, which that kills me because he doesn't say just a few talking about the church he doesn't say there's just going to be a couple that are going to come to me he says there are many that are going to come to me on the last day when jesus is in heaven and he's standing at the gates to see who gets to enter in he says many are going to come to me and say lord lord didn't we prophesy in your name didn't we cast out demons in your name didn't we do miracles in your name he says that's not enough because see words are not enough and actions are not enough Somehow doing the right things are not enough because that's not what Jesus calls us to. These people lay out a great impressive list of things that they've done. Probably more things that some of us have done in the church. And I venture to say many people today, if you were to go on the street and ask them, why should Jesus let you into heaven? Why do you think that you will go to heaven? They will begin to raise a litany of things that they've done. I've tried to be good. I've tried to be sincere. I've done all the right things. I treat people the way I'm supposed to treat them. And all of those things are good things. But in and of themselves, it's not enough. Hosea 6, 6 is God saying, For I delight in loyalty. I delight in relationship rather than sacrifice. I desire an intimate knowledge of me rather than a burnt offering. You see, what he's saying is you can do all the great things, all the spiritual things in the world. It's not enough. Do you know that most of the world religions are based on works, 
doing things to earn your way to heaven. Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, they're based on the things that you do and somehow that you do enough to earn your way to a level of heaven. But the only problem with that is the Bible says our best is never good enough. You see, if you think this morning that somehow you've made a deal with God, and I love hearing people, I've got, a, I've got a, me and the man upstairs, we've got an agreement. Well, no, you don't. Somehow you think you've made a side deal with God, and somehow you're going to do good things, because that's what we do, right? We make deals with God. When things are going bad, God, if you'll just do this for me, then I'll do this, 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 or this, whatever it is that we try to twist God's arm with. God, please get me out of this problem, right? And I'll take care of these things. Somehow we think we can do the same thing with our salvation. But the problem is that your best, the best that you can do, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. Because God expects perfection. We learned back in Matthew 5, the standard for salvation is perfection, and you and I can't get there on our own. We need help, and the only help the Bible offers is Jesus Christ. Not your words, not your works, not your sincere desire, Jesus Christ. I've used this illustration before, but what if God decided to make the Bible very simple? Decided to make salvation very simply. He said, listen, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to experience abundant life, all you need to do is to swim from California to Hawaii. What if that was the only verse? What if that was the only command? You want a relationship with Jesus Christ? You want to experience heaven? Then you've got to swim from California to Hawaii. Our first response would be, that's not fair, right? That's impossible. Do you understand it's no more impossible swimming from California to Hawaii than it is for somehow your good works to get you to heaven? But even if that was the case, what would we do? Some people, they'd say, oh, we'd train and we'd eat right and we'd do all these things to try to get us ready to make the swim. And some of us may swim 10 miles. And some of us may swim 1,000 miles. But guess what? It's 2,500 miles to Hawaii. You can't do it. Even if you were the best swimmer in the world, it is impossible. And your best will never get you there. And so you know what would happen? If that was the spiritual requirement to get to Hawaii, we had to swim there for us to be saved. You know what we would begin to do? We'd start saying, well, I know I can't swim to Hawaii, but I can swim farther than he can and she can and he can. And so somehow because I can swim farther than they can, I'm better off than they are. And we do the same thing in our spiritual life. We look around and we think, listen, I do so much better than they do. And I try so much harder than they do. And so somehow that is going to make me, in God's eyes, a better person. Well, guess what? It's all filth and rags. Because your best can never be good enough. We need to understand it just doesn't work because all of us will miss the mark. You see... The Bible's clear that salvation will always lead us to do good works, but it doesn't work the other way around. Good works will never lead to salvation. Our response to what God has done in our life will always be to serve Him. But serving Him for the sake of earning your salvation 
doesn't work. I used to tell teenagers when I was a youth pastor in Texas, uh, letter jackets are big. I noticed they're not real big up here. You would think Texas jackets wouldn't mean anything because we never have to wear them. But, uh, and here in North Carolina, people would wear it. But it's just the opposite, at least in the mountains. But in Texas, it was a huge deal to get a letter jacket. I mean, when you varsity athlete, whatever you did in varsity sport, when you got a letter jacket, they made a huge deal of it. And it was a huge deal when you got your letter jacket to, to walk around town and, and to let everybody know that you had lettered in whatever it is that you lettered in. But I used to tell teenagers that, that I work with, listen, you can wear a letter jacket every day of the winter and it doesn't make you a varsity athlete. But if you're a varsity athlete, you'll wear a letter jacket. Why? Because that is the response. Doing good works saying the right things. It's never enough. And sadly, many people today think that, that they've made this side deal or that somehow they just keep being good enough. And you know what's even sadder, and this isn't even part of the message, but what's even sadder is many people in the church that are living in false guilt because they've accepted Jesus Christ and they've gotten His free offer of grace, but they're still somehow trying to earn or pay back something they can never pay back. And so they don't have any joy. You see, when you get saved, your response is out of joy to want to serve Him. I don't write a check to the church because I'm trying to pay God back for what He did for me. I don't serve and do ministry and sing and lead and teach Sunday school or teach children's choir somehow because that is paying God back. I do it because it's a joy to get to serve a God who saved me in spite of myself. And so many believers, that's why we don't have cheerful givers, because people are guilted into giving. Because you think somehow you're paying God back. Listen, you could write everything you've got and it wouldn't be enough. But when you get to the moment to, to realize that you don't have to, but you get to, you move from condemnation to joy in the Christian life. So many believers are in bondage to works. Jesus said good works aren't enough. Good words aren't enough. So what is enough? Real simple. He tells us at the end of verse 23. Many people will come to me on that day and say, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we do miracles? Didn't we even cast out demons? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because you see, the question that counts, the question that's important, the thing that Jesus wants us to hear this morning is not do you know Jesus, but does Jesus know you? It's not a matter of your head knowledge. It's not a matter of you experiencing Him or singing about it. It's a matter of, do you have a relationship with Him that is to the point that He knows you intimately? Because you see, Christianity is not about what we do, and it's not about religion, and it's not about all the things that we put into it. It's simply about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's getting to know Him and making yourself known to Him to the point that He knows you. In the New Testament, there's four words for, for know, K-N-O-W. One of them deals with knowing as perception. Uh, one of them deals with knowing intellectually, having this head knowledge you know because you rationalize it out. One of them deals with the senses you know because you see something. I know that that wall is there because I see it. I know that the chair is there because I see it. Intellectually, I know because, because it was created to have me sit. But this is a different word. Here he uses the Greek word gnosko. Gnosko is the idea of knowing in an intimate form. It is the idea of experiencing knowledge. 
It is the idea of personal and intimate knowledge. It is the idea of a shared knowledge. It is the same word used to describe in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, where Mary is told she's going to have a baby. And Mary looks at the angel of the Lord and says, How can I have a baby? I have never known a man. We see, Mary knew men intellectually. She knew men because she came in contact with them all the time, but she had never intimately had a relationship with a man to the point that they knew her. See, what Jesus is saying is what, what develops is Christianity, what God is calling us to is an intimate knowledge with Him, beyond head knowledge, beyond this idea that you can perceive something. It is an experiential knowledge. You know that you know that Jesus is not just Lord, He is my Lord. He doesn't just save, He saved me. He doesn't just forgive, He forgave me. He doesn't just offer grace, He gave me grace. Because it's that point when you develop an intimate relationship that all of a sudden He knows you as well as you know Him. Now people say, well, God's omniscient and Jesus is God, so He knows everything. Yeah, He knows everything. But He only knows those intimately who invite Him to. He doesn't force yourself on you. Paul says in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Same word, gnosko. Paul knew who Jesus was. Paul knew all about Jesus. He could tell you stories about Jesus. He, he met people who talked to Jesus firsthand. But Paul says, no, I'm not happy with just knowing Him. I'm not happy with just words. I'm not happy with just trying to do things. I want to experience Jesus. And so the question for us this morning is, does Jesus know you? See, most of us would have no hesitation saying we know about Jesus. You know stories. You can quote Scripture. You can quote passage. But what we need to understand this morning is, do you have an intimate relationship with Him? Because it's not about what you say with your lips. It's not about what you do for God or what you've done for God. It's not even about you knowing that Jesus is God. It's not even about you saying a couple of scripted lines. The question this morning is, does Jesus know you? Because you see, you can know everything there is about Christianity. You can be sincere you can serve God every Sunday, every week. You can do all the best things in the world. But if you never have a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, and sadly Jesus says our churches are full of people like that, and I would venture to guess even in here this morning there's some like that. If you've never developed an intimate personal walk with Christ to the point that not only do you know Him, but He knows you, then you're missing out. You're missing out on experiencing grace and forgiveness and peace and power in this life. Jesus calls it abundant life. But worse, you're missing out and you're going to miss out on eternity and eternity spent with Him. Because you see, that's God's promise and He always keeps His promise. That's why Jesus was so adamant in this passage. Jesus is saying you can be convicted without being converted. You can have baptism and never experience a new birth. You can have religion and never have a relationship. See, so you can walk an aisle, you can pray a prayer, you can sit in a pew all of your life and still miss it. Because Jesus doesn't know you. You see, the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ is everyone in this room will one day stand before God. Every one of us. Those who curse God, those who deny God, those who are sincere and religious, all of us are going to stand before Him one day. And we're only going to hear one of two things. 
There's no middle ground. There's no, hey, let me think about this. Let me review my notes. Jesus is either going to say, welcome in my good and faithful servant or depart from me, I never knew you. It's the only two options. And according to Jesus here, there are many in the church every Sunday who think they're going to hear, welcome in, and are going to hear, depart from me. My question to you this morning is, what does your heart say you would hear? Because see, it doesn't matter what you say. doesn't even matter what you've done. What matters is, does Jesus know you? You see, deception and denial and doubt and pride will all hear the same response from Jesus. Why not this morning stop trying to get your mind to convince your heart of something that you doubt to be true and make it true? See, Jesus didn't teach this so you and I would walk out of here doubting. Jesus taught this so you and I would walk out of here knowing. And not just knowing that this is truth, but knowing Him. Have you experienced Jesus? Have you experienced the power of His resurrection? Do you have an intimate relationship with Him to the point that He knows you? Because that's the standard He set. Jesus wants all of you or none of you. What do you offer him? Let's pray.